Amen. Uh, do remain standing with me and turn to the sermon scripture. Uh, you'll find it this evening in First uh, Timothy, chapter three. First Timothy, chapter three. Coming now uh, to the end of that chapter tonight. Uh, having looked uh, in some uh, detail, I suppose, at the qualifications for the offices in the church of elder and deacon. Over the last several Sunday evenings, uh, we turn this, this evening uh, to verse 14 of chapter 3, uh, reading from there to the end of the chapter. Uh, listen, beloved, now to the holy, inerrant word of God. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearing. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, make us uh, evermore a people of the Word of God who love and cherish and hear with highest joy uh, your Holy Word, read from your Bible, uh, preached from your pulpits, and heard among the saints. Uh, bless our hearts, O Lord, uh, this evening in this glad hour that we might receive with deepest joy and uh, humility and faith and obedience this, your perfect, holy, unfailing word. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, even though uh, the Ephesian church where Timothy served as pastor, was well planted in the true gospel. And even though uh, it was well established, and even though it was being led capably by Timothy, perhaps Paul's most trusted co-worker, indeed he will call him that, Nevertheless, Paul still felt the need to come and visit Timothy personally in order to give him further directions and assistance in his pastoral work. It gives you a window into the life and ministry of the apostle that he had a tremendous feeling of personal responsibility for the churches of Jesus Christ that he had planted or where he had given uh, a certain time of his life to strengthen and to encourage them. 
Uh, Paul's was largely, as you know, an itinerant ministry. He would stay in some places and in some churches uh, longer than others, but the churches were always on his mind. And not just one church, not just the one church where he was presently, but the churches, plural. They were always on his mind. And concerning them, he felt profoundly responsible. So much so that it was his ardent desire to personally visit them. He often writes about this in his epistles, that he might encourage and assist them. And beloved, some ministers are called to this kind of work. And it is a great blessing to the churches. They are pastors to pastors. They are ministers to ministers. They are servants of the servants of God. But I think there's more here. When Paul says in verse 14, I hope to come to you shortly. I think this is more than a mere sentimental nicety. This is a very natural thing for Christians to say to one another and to feel for one another. There should be love and longing among them. Is that okay to say, uh, men? But it's a little window, I think, into the personal side of Paul. It's one we should appreciate and one we should even emulate. Christians love other Christians. And they long to see them. And it pains them to be apart. I've been thinking about that with regard to the Sacketts lately. With Susan's diagnosis, it pains us, doesn't it? To be apart from them at a time like this. We want to be with them, to encourage them, to pray with them. But that fellowship is sweet. It is unique, truly unique. We are brothers and sisters. We really are. We are often closer to one another in the church than we are with our own natural family because we become one another's true spiritual family in the body of Christ. But because Paul is delayed, as he says in verse 15, in his coming, he writes this letter. How wonderful, incidentally, is the providence of God that because Paul was delayed, we have this letter. And the reason for his writing, as we have said a number of times, and has often been identified as the theme of this letter in verse 15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Notice Matthew Henry says that those who are employed in the house of God must see to it that they behave themselves well, that they are above reproach, that they walk in a manner worthy of that name, the name of Jesus by which they are called, that they behave themselves well, that they look not only to their praying and to their preaching, 
uh, to their behavior. Henry says further that they are bound by their office to their good behavior. And in this case, for pastors, not just any behavior shall do. Notice verse 15, there is a way that a minister ought to conduct himself in the house of God. And elsewhere he will say things like this, watch your life and your doctrine carefully. The ministry is not aptitude only. It is aptitude. But it is not aptitude only. It begins with character and conduct, as we've seen. Have you noticed that the presidential campaign has now degenerated nearly to a discussion entirely of character and conduct and poor character and conduct uh, at that. And we hear little, it seems, at least in the last few days, anything about public policy, but how poorly this individual or that individual has behaved uh, in the past. It's, it's ironic for a modern American culture that has prided itself on moral relativism. Now, these are private matters we always hear. It's none of your business how one conducts his or her affairs uh, when they are in, the, in their private homes. And just about anything, it seems, can be justified uh, on the grounds that it is a private matter between two individuals or a woman and her doctor or consenting partners. Oh, but all of a sudden it matters how you speak, how you act. Character counts. Conduct matters. There's an underlying sense that every person has, no matter how much we try to suppress it, that it does matter what kind of person you are. If we look for that in our candidates, we are often, often disappointed. But a church has the right, indeed, it has the obligation to expect it from its leaders. Notice that he calls the house of God the church of the living God. The church is the house of God. We are not at all far off when we call the church the house of God. You've probably heard at some point in your life, maybe when you were a child and you were misbehaving and roughhousing in church, is that any way to conduct yourself in the house of God? Well, you can see where something like this comes from. There is a way to conduct yourself in church. Why? Because, look at what he says, it is the house of God. God dwells there. It is his house, his dwelling place where he resides. Think about that, beloved. The implications of that for our behavior, for our hearts, for our attitudes as we approach worship, for our teaching. If God dwells here, if this is his house, what should our behavior, what should our attitude be? 
What should our thoughts be as we come to worship our words? We often think of this language as reserved for Old Testament temple language, the house of God or the house of the Lord. But here it is in the New Testament, describing the church of Jesus Christ. This is the house of God. What an incomprehensibly great blessing. God deigns, he condescends to dwell in the midst of his people, to live among us, to make his dwelling place in his church by his spirit through the divine presence of his son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, don't miss Paul's language. The church is the house where God dwells. Here he will rest. Here he will dwell among his people, for he has chosen it for his dwelling place. And here we may see the power and the glory of God in his church. Second, the church is the church of the living God. That's Paul's way of saying that God is the only true God. And that all other so-called gods are false gods and idols, but only God is the true and living God. But more than that, it is a way of saying that God is living and that he is the source and the fountain of life. He is life itself. And he himself gives life and breath and movement to everything else. As Paul says in that great sermon in Acts 17, quoting, in fact, one of their own prophets, in him uh, we live and move and have our being. So God is living. He is alive. And he is life-giving. And it should be the greatest encouragement to Christians to know that God is living, that he lives and that he sees and that he speaks and that he hears, to know that the church of which we are a part is the house of God, where the living God himself dwells in our midst, to know that he can hear us when we pray, Because he is the living God, he can speak to us by his word. He knows our needs and our concerns. He loves us. He has given his son, Jesus Christ, for us. Indeed, dear friends, every time we gather for worship, as we have tonight, no matter how few of us there may be, if we call upon the name of Jesus Christ in faith, Paul is saying God is here and he dwells among us in this, his house. Now when Paul says in verse 15 that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, you should know first of all this has been hotly debated as to its meaning uh, over the years. The Roman Catholic uh, position has been to say that the authority of the scriptures depend upon that of the church to give to the truth, to give to the scriptures their proper authority and interpretation. Protestants have opposed that position. 
And they have staked out the position that it is not the church that establishes the word, but it is the word that establishes the church. That first the word is preached, and then God makes his church through the preaching of the gospel by the power and blessing of the Holy Spirit. That's what Carl Truman, when he was here a few weeks ago, was telling us so eloquently when he says that it really is an odd thing when we Christians talk about, as apparently some people do, doing church. For church, he reminded us, is not really something that we do uh, at all. Church is something that God does. The church is something that God creates, that he makes. And we are only here because of the work of God's grace in our lives through the preaching of the gospel. The word creates the church, Reformed Protestants have always said. So the church is not the pillar and ground of the truth in that sense, that the word of God rests on the church for its authority. The church does not authorize the word. The word of God is self-authenticating because it is the word of God, the highest possible authority. But the church does hold forth the scripture. It does hold forth the doctrine of Christ as the pillar to which the church's proclamation is attached. That is to say, the church is called to uphold the truth of God, to proclaim the truth of God. And indeed, we have said that the faithful teaching and preaching of the word is one of the fundamental marks of the true church. That unless you have the right preaching and teaching of the word of God, you do not have a biblical church. And that is why Paul made it absolutely non-negotiable in his own ministry to faithfully preach sound doctrine, to faithfully preach the pure word of God himself. And this is why he insisted upon it from Timothy and from other preachers. He insisted, for example, just to give a few instances from Scripture, that they preach the word, 2 Timothy 4, that they be ready in season and out of season. He said in another place that a minister should study to show himself approved, rightly dividing the word of God. He said in 1 Corinthians that he had determined to know nothing among them but Christ and him crucified. In Acts 20, he says that it was his goal to impart to the church the whole counsel of God. And elsewhere he said, far be it from me that I should fail to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, this is how high the stakes are. The church does not create the word. The word does not depend on the church for its authority. But the word is deposited in the church. And the church is called upon by Christ to uphold it and to preach it. It sounds so simple. But history tells us it is not. It is a high and holy calling to preach 
and uphold the word of God. But the temptations now and throughout history have always been great to do otherwise. And the history books read like catalogs of those who have failed and compromised it. The church, and I have all of you in mind now, is to love the word and to cherish the word, to defend the word, to study the word. We are to preach it. We are to have high regard for it. We are to publish it, to transmit it safe and pure and uncorrupted unto posterity. And if and when the church fails to do this, dear friends, she ceases to be the true church. And we may and we ought to forsake her because our love for the truth of the word of God is higher than our regard for the visible church. We're not obligated to continue in the church if she does not continue to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. I know that many men tried to remain faithful in the liberal denominations for many years, like the PCUSA, even until recent times. I personally wondered about that, and I don't know how they did that. To me, the situation demanded separation many years ago, once the church departed from fundamental sound doctrine of Jesus Christ and of salvation. Have I told you the story of the Puritan John Rogers? If you have the idea that Puritan preaching and Puritan sermons were boring and dull, this will give you another idea. The great Thomas Goodwin was apparently on hand to witness the occasion. Mr. John Rogers was on the subject of the scriptures. This is from Goodwin's account, and in that sermon he falls into an expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. And he proceeded to impersonate God to the people. And with great theatrics, he told them, well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in such and such a house, all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look at it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And he took up the Bible from his cushion. It seemed as if he were going away with it and carrying it away from them out of the church. But immediately he turns again and personates now the people to God. And he fell down on his knees and he cried out and pleads most earnestly, Lord, whatsoever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us thy Bible. Only take not away thy Bible. And he personates now God again to his people. Say you so? Well, I will try you a little longer. And here is my Bible for you. I will see how you use it. 
whether you will love it more, whether you will value it more, whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live more according to it. Thomas Goodwin, I mentioned, the great Puritan doctor of theology, was on hand. An associate of his recalled the rest of Goodwin's story. By these actions, he put all the congregation into so strange a posture that he never saw any congregation in his life. The people were generally deluged with their own tears. And he told me that he himself, when he got out and was to take horse again to be gone, was fain to hang a quarter of an hour upon the neck of his horse, weeping before he had the power to mount. Having been thus expostulated upon for neglect of the Bible. Now, this is not... Dr. John Rogers, church, this is me now. Do you love your Bible? Would you have your Bible? Would you keep it a little longer? Would you read it? Or would it lie covered with dust and cobwebs on the shelves in your home? Do we read our Bibles? We have more Bibles and translations and helps than any people in history. I sometimes think they serve as distractions. Do we read our Bibles? Do we meditate on them day and night? Would you pray that God would not send a famine of hearing the word of the Lord as he has sent it upon other churches that turned away from his word. Well, if Paul tells us that the mark of the true church is faithfulness to the word of God, uh, he then lists the key elements in the truth that the church is to teach. And he does this in verse 16. Uh, I don't often provide this for you, but because uh, of the way this, uh, this verse uh, is laid out, and you'll notice in your Bibles most likely it is indented, almost set uh, poetically, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Notice now six points, six elements, six heads. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Here's a summary of Christ's life from his birth to his ascension, from his incarnation as a little baby, as a human being, to his exaltation. And Paul very well may have been quoting an early hymn of adoration or an early creed of the Christian church. God, or he, as some of our manuscripts have it, Christ, was manifested in the flesh. It is, of course, a reference to his birth, to the incarnation of our Lord, but clearly also then by implication to his 
pre-existence and therefore to his deity. The one who was born of a virgin, the one who took bodily form and was found in a human body was the eternal word of God made flesh, manifest in the flesh. So here you have Christ's deity, his pre-existence, his incarnation, his birth. As John would summarize it so beautifully, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. Justified in the spirit, the second point. Paul does not mention, you will have noticed, the sinless life of Jesus, or he doesn't mention also the suffering of Jesus on the cross, at least not explicitly. But when he says that he was justified in the Spirit, or as some of our translations have it, vindicated by the Spirit, what he is telling us is that though Christ was put to death as a sinner and treated as the very worst of criminals, he was raised again by the Spirit and was so justified or vindicated from all the slanderous lies told about him and all the injustice done against him. Jesus was mistreated. He was beaten. He was scorned. He was forsaken. As our substitute, he became an atoning sacrifice. He became sin, a sin offering for us on the cross. But when he was raised, That was his vindication, that the accusations made against him were false, that the things done to him were unjust, that he was indeed the pure son of God and deserved nothing that was done to him by evil men. The resurrection of Christ was therefore the vindication, the justification of that. As Paul will say, he was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That's Romans 1.4. Third, you might not think of this as an important point of Christian doctrine. He was seen by angels. They worshipped him. Let all the angels of God worship him, Hebrews 1.6. They announced his birth. They were witnesses of his birth, his temptation, where they ministered to him, his agony in the garden. You remember where the angel of God was sent to minister to Jesus in his agony. They witnessed his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. To Paul, it gives great honor to Jesus that he was seen by angels that those in the upper world of creation took an interest in his life and ministry and were present to witness it. Third, fourth, excuse me, he was preached among the Gentiles or the nations. For so he said in his great commission that repentance and faith were to be preached to all nations in his name and that the nations of the Gentiles were to be called and discipled through the preaching of the gospel and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. 
Here is a mark, dear friend, of the messianic age, the age that dawned with the coming of the Messiah. Christ is preached among the nations, and the nations are blessed with salvation. Fifth, believed on in the world. Following from that, as Christ was preached among the nations, he was believed on in the world. That preaching by Christian preachers has not been in vain. It has been blessed by God. It has been attended to by the Holy Spirit who has made that preaching of the gospel effectual unto salvation. So that now not only the Jewish people, but the Gentiles, even the world, has believed on Jesus Christ. It's a way of Paul accentuating Christ's universal kingdom and the building up of his church among all peoples. Finally, received up in glory. This is a reference, of course, to his ascension to heaven, to his exaltation. It doesn't seem it should be last in order, but it is the crowning glory of his redemptive work. And it is on the basis of his ascension, his exaltation to heaven, on the basis of the fact that he is seated at God's right hand as the Lord of the universe above all power and principality and title and every name that can be given, that Jesus is building his church, defeating the powers and calling all nations to himself because he is risen and exalted on high. Here then is a brief yet marvelous summary of the Christian gospel. The deity, incarnation, birth, life, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, and the building of his church, and the universal preaching of the gospel. Paul calls it the great mystery of godliness. This is what you need to know, and I need to know to be a Christian. This is the summary of the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the fundamental content of the word of God, which Paul says must be preached and upheld and guarded in the church of Jesus Christ if it is to be considered a true church. And it is absolutely necessary that all Christians, and not just pastors, but all Christians should bear witness to this truth. We're given six facts to know. All Christians can and should know them. Let's pray. Father, we are always uh, overjoyed uh, to hear your word, to be reminded of the growth of the church, 2,000 years ago, uh, all the way back in the first century when men like the Apostle Paul and men like young Timothy walked the roads of the ancient world and preached the living word of God and by your sovereign grace and spirit, 
Christians were made and churches were established. And they needed to know how to live and how to conduct themselves and what kind of leaders to have and what they were to believe and what they were to say and to preach. And so we thank you for this brief reminder tonight of the beauty of your church, of the wonder of your word, the simplicity of the gospel. We thank you, dear Father, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, the eternal Son of God, indeed, appeared in the flesh, became a man, that he suffered and was crucified for our sins and was raised from the dead the third day. We thank you that this was witnessed by the angels who could attest to his glory. We thank you that he ascended on high and sent forth his spirit that the gospel might be preached among the nations and believed in the world so that men and women and children of every tribe and tongue and people and nation might worship and glorify the one true and living God. Oh, thank you, Lord, that you have included us in the number of your people. We praise you for this, and we will bless your name forever. Help us to guard the deposit of your word in this church and keep it, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.